Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. There's that old saying that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's the case for ultra running and trail running media. I know I stand on the shoulders of giants. And yes, I Run Far was not the first ultra running media out there, but it was the media that made Anton Kaprichka and Killian Jornet and Andy Jones Wilkins household names. Half of the brains behind I Run Far is on the adventure jogger. Brian Powell, thank you for joining us, Brian. Oh, it is a pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on. So, I heard from a little bird, Brian, and that bird being named Andy Jones Wilkins, that you are a Beast Coaster at heart. You were born and raised on the Beast Coast, right? Uh, born and bred in New Jersey. Spent yeah, spent my childhood right there, and yeah, and then on to Philly for college and DC area for another decade after that. So yeah. Okay, well let's let's get, let's get the Brian Powell story. Let's start right from the beginning. When did you discover running? Was it something that you always did, or something you discovered after too many beers in college and you have to lose some weight? <laughs> no, no, I uh, I, I kind of was a, a typical kid and participated in a bunch of different sports. Uh, running was not really one of them. Mostly uh, team sports growing up um, until. Uh, I guess you could say the end of my eighth grade year of uh, junior high or really the beginning of my uh, high school uh, career. Um, I just didn't think I would make the, uh, even the freshman uh, soccer team, or if I did uh, to make uh, any playing times, so I was like, eh, I kind of like to do a sport. So saw my runners, na- my neighbors running and uh, decided to, to go in that direction and see how it went. Okay. So that's, that's high school for you when you're, we you start in the, in the running world. Totally. Yep. So yeah. cross country, was it cross country or track? Cross country, indoor track, outdoor track. I went from nothing to spend all uh, 12 eligible seasons in high school uh, as a runner. Oh, that's fantastic. Was it something you continued doing in college or? Oh, totally. Yep. Uh, ran, ran all through high school, ran through all through college and yeah, it's been, it's been what I've done for a long, long time. Though there've been some interludes where, uh, I guess uh, for part of my collegiate career, I became a sprinter, which was uh, an interesting diversion, but uh, it, it kept me motivated to get back to the distance running thing uh, afterward. Was it one coach who was like, ah, we need another sprinter. Powell, you look like you got some long legs. You need to be on the sprinting team. Uh, that, that, that's about two thirds of the story. And the other third is Brian, your head case running distance. So we need a person to run on the four by two team. Uh, indoor track and uh, you're, you're pretty quick doing your stride. So what do you say? So 
<laughs> a month later, I'd grown out of all my jeans and was a sprinter. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny because you know, I was a sprinter in, in high school and uh, I, I love the four by two. And the four by two is a race that rarely happens anymore in high school because you do the four by one, and the four by four, but mm-hmm. the four by two is a hoot. But I remember, you know, I kind of went through running and found it, found distance running the midlife crisis type of way when I realized that, mm-hmm. you know, growing up as a sprinter, you, you can't really be an adult and get in shape being a sprinter. Like there's like, <laughs> you can't sign up on ultra sign up for the hundred meter, 200 meter dash 41 year old age bracket. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty limited uh, set of options. There are some masters track meets, but uh, they're pretty few and far between uh, if you're not in a big city. Yeah, for sure. So, ultra running when do you discover ultra running uh i guess it was not too long after college actually i uh moved to dc because i had a high school friend who lived there and there were jobs so all right let's move to dc and uh i guess i found myself without a car maybe 22 23 years old just a year out of school and uh wanted to go hit the trails i grew up uh, in new jersey but uh, behind my parents house was beautiful trail system state park yeah uh so i grew up all on the weekend on the summers just running trails um and i wanted to run some trails uh around dc and yeah ended up getting a ride out to uh, the shenandoah mountains with some uh folks from a local trail running club the virginia happy trails running club which turned out to be an ultra running club um (laughs) and was very quickly uh broadened to that fold well, I will say this, Brian, you're, you're not old by any stretch of the imagination, but this is not, you know, this was before I run far. And I know you're well aware that you found trail running before I run far. Uh, but so this has to be, you discover this, you, you think it's a trail running club. You're thinking, oh, we're going to run a 5K, 10K, maybe we'll do a half. And then there's some yeah. people in these groups that is like, hey, Brian, there's this, this, this thing called an ultra marathon. Was it kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, we just went the first run I did with the group. Uh, I don't remember how many miles, but it was probably like a 15 or 16 mile loop. It took, let's say, three hours. It was a, it was a good day or a good half day outing. Um, and just ended up running with them a couple times. And they were talking about the races and uh, just kind of, I guess I was just in autumn, um, yeah. probably 2001. And by April, I decided to, to sign up for my first uh first ultra all right what was that brian uh, promised land 50k one of uh dave horton's races oh one of the classics it was it still is yeah, yeah of course beautiful race so how did that first ultra go for you brian i know i've heard, i've talked to people honestly like i interviewed max king and i was like ah, oh, yeah i won um i had to walk the last five miles but i still won by an hour and yeah. i've heard people uh, that it's like it's, it's a disaster and <laughs> they were almost dead last and then they decided to do it again it's probably more toward the, the former. I mean, I wasn't, <laughs> I'm no Max King, so there was no win, but uh, I'd run, a, I think, a couple marathons at that point. Um, and I'd been running with the, the Virginia Happy Trails crew, so I was a sponge of uh, soaking up their knowledge. Speaking of sh- standing on the shoulders of the Giants, like uh, the Scotty Mills of the world, uh, just totally great, like, experienced runners. Um, so learn their knowledge and yeah the, the first 50k went great i kind of i don't know i don't know if i paced myself excellently but it meted my effort out and i knew there was i think with five miles to go like a big climb and then a downhill so 
I was basically like running a marathon with a a walk up, run down afterward <laughs> or at the end. So, right? Did you it went all right? Yeah, that's that's awesome. Did you discover walking? Were were you shocked that there was walking involved in the? Or sorry, not walking, Brian. We don't walk. We power hike. <laughs> there was no, because I guess the the guys I ran with uh, straight out of the bat with the, the Happy Trails Club, the uh, it was involved in their running. We were we were out in the mountains in the Shenandoah, so uh, got to see that firsthand and. Uh, learn from them. Um, when did you decide to go West? That would have been 2000 spring of 2009. I, at that point was an attorney in DC and didn't love it. And with a lot of stress and, uh, kind of had, I run far going just in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when I quit my job, I, there's no advertising or anything on like that on I run far intentionally. And I had one coaching client, I think, maybe two at that point, uh, and decided to give it a go. Um, Megan Hicks was out and, uh, working in Yosemite, California and, um, left our living in Arlington, Virginia and moved out, uh, to the Sierra Nevada foothills. Let's get to the birth and the genesis of Iron Far in a second. But, um, after talking to Andy Jones Wilkins and he shared the story of his 2005 Western States where he took second place, just 26 mm-hmm. minutes behind Scott Jurek, um, one of his greatest running moments ever. I did notice that you ran Western States in 2005, Brian. I did. 20, actually, yeah. yeah. 21st place. Can you take us back to the moment when you were passed by Andy Jones Wilkins? Uh, that probably would have been the start line. So. <laughs> <laughs> I had no, no illusions of uh, trying to win the race, which AJW most certainly was. Uh, I was... I think at that point, uh, one of my ultra running mentors is Scotty Mills, uh, then a runner and RD out in the DC area. And now lives, uh, he started the San Diego hundred and that kind of, a bunch of other races in San Diego area. Um, and he'd always wanted to run 20 hours. Um, and I think he has 20, 20 or 20 plus finishes at Western States. Yeah. Anyway, um, he'd come close and never quite done it. And, ah, it was a special day. Cause I, he was not racing that year. And I saw him at Michigan bluff and was knew I was having a good day and on the right splits and could tell him I'm going for 20 hours. I'm doing it for you. Yeah. I'm going to tick that box for you. That's pretty awesome. So was that your yeah. first Western States? I didn't go too deep into your, into no, your stats, I did, Brian. Uh, I ran in 2004 as well. Okay. What, what made that you was my first hundred in 2004? Oh, so you, you actually are one of those rare birds that ran Western States for your first hundred. Totally. How did you hear about about states? When did you discover that? But was I run? <laughs> it was the Virginia Happy Trails group. They were okay. they were a bunch of them that were pretty obsessed with it. So, so you get wrapped in just with the with the guys talking about it so much. You're like, oh, this sounds pretty damn good. A horse race turns totally. into a running race, yeah. right right up my alley. And, and they probably would have had me running it, my you know by 2000 you know right away basically. But I I wanted to. Since ultra running was new to me in 2002, let's say, I yeah. wanted to enjoy that experience. I didn't want to just, I could have, I ran a 70 mile race five weeks after my first 50K, but I didn't want to blow through all of that immediately. It was very intentional to like, hey, let's see what 50 miles is like. Let's see what 50Ks are like. Do you think a lot of people now rush too quickly through the distances of the sport? I don't think it's just now. I think it's, <laughs> Everywhere. it's been you know, back when I was doing it, I was unusual in that 
I saw other people join the club and very quickly, you know, maybe six months later they were running a hundred and you can, yeah. but I, like I said, I, I was 23 or 24 at the time. And I kind of was like, why am I going to go to this, you know, sort of not pinnacle distance, but sort of what at the time was the longest distance. Why am I going to jump there a year after doing my first marathon? Like let's take your time. <laughs> Brian Powell's yeah, not going anywhere. You gotta, you gotta, I, got, oh. <laughs> I got my time. I got my time to make that yeah. all work. When did I run far? become an idea in the noodle <laughs> I, it's kind of it kind of bounced around in a d- bunch of iterations i uh she stuck when i was studying for the bar exam in the summer of 2006 i registered i run far uh as a domain name yeah um but because back at that time there weren't really any good um there are a bunch of different websites run 100s oldrunner.com um that had different sort of compendiums of knowledge but i thought there was areas that it could be added to where there really wasn't run 100s had a list of hundred milers, but there's ways to add information. And I thought about going in that direction at the time and played around and, and didn't do anything with it. Eventually I started a blog, uh, just a personal running blog yeah. back in 2006. That's what people did. There wasn't, people weren't doing Facebook and Twitter. Like that's how you would interact. And there were tens of thousands of them. Um, and eventually I just sort of decided to make it an in- informational resource. Um, among what, in addition to what I was doing, but early on, it was just, you know, here's what I'm noodling. Here's, you know, here's what training I'm doing. Just random stuff. Um, AJW told me those early days with those blogs, it was a lot of uh, time for people to talk shit and trash talk on each other's blogs. (laughs) Because <laughs> you didn't that have Facebook. I would have been the direction AJW went in. <laughs> I would say more discussion in my case. I, I, so basically, if, if we were to go through old running blogs from 2003 to 2006 time, we would not see Brian Powell posting trash talk on other people's blogs is what you, what you're not. saying. <laughs> we, we, if we saw, we looked at AJW. Yes. He would be tra- <laughs> but he had a core group of friends where that's, you know, and uh, he and I do it to each other these days, but uh, that's uh, kind of his group of friends would, would needle each other and challenge each other and, and, you know, help each other be more by doing that. That's just the way they, they interacted. So, you know, now that we said that, Brian, someone's going to find the one time you tried to trash talk <laughs> and yeah. instantly regretted it. And like, damn it, I want to take that, take the comment down. Someone's going to find it because everything on the Internet stays on the Internet. It's there. Yeah. No, I, I guess it's possible with some of my club mates. But yeah. <laughs> so you're studying for the bar <laughs> in which anytime you talk to someone who's studying to pass the bar, that's a very time-consuming thing, Brian. That's not, you know, something you buy cliff notes for at Books a Million, and then maybe you spend a couple of afternoons looking that over. So when you're doing that, you're obviously still have still bored, and so you decide to launch an ultra-running website. Well, I mean, it was more playing around at that point. Like, it, was, it wasn't even a blog at that point. It was learning a little bit of coding and, and just playing around with the concept. Uh, just as little breaks, like... I was renting a, a little one bedroom apartment in park city in Utah and, um, didn't have a TV, didn't have anything. So that was just kind of like, all right, I need half an hour break from studying contracts or whatever the heck I was studying. Right. 
to, to do that. So, and with yeah. Park City, Utah now, a little one-bedroom apartment, you couldn't afford to have a television if you get that one-bedroom apartment. No. no. <laughs> it's, no. it's not, not a cheap was, place to live. Not a, it was doable at the time. Right. Maybe not so much now. But um, so no. when does it start to take off? When do you notice that people are, are starting to actually click on the thing and, and really start using it as a resource? I mean, it, pretty much from the start of when I tried to make it an information resource. Off the bat, it was sort of friends and club mates and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was the blogs at that time were very dynamic. Like you were commenting on other people's blogs and, mm-hmm. and vice versa. And you'd have a blog list and other people would check it out. And it was just, again, this was before Facebook, or at least before Facebook was anything substantial. Right. Um, or any other social media platforms, I guess maybe MySpace was coming around. But that's how you would just get to to know people from other, you know, either from your community or from, from other communities, especially with ultra running being a sort of a niche area. I would, you know, if I was going to do a race, I would search out other people's race reports and vice versa. And, um, yeah, pretty much from, I already had, you know, some interaction at the point when I made it informational and, um, just kind of step by step. Uh, I remember posting a question about, uh, should I check out X or Y model La Sportiva running shoe? And I think the head of La Sportiva commented back. And I ended up, that was the first time I think I did a gear review was checking it. They offered to send me some sample pairs and I did. And just kind of incrementally step-by-step uh, gained traction and readership. And But it was very much at that point, it was, I had a more than full-time job. I was running, um, so it was, I don't think there was, there was no regular schedule or uh, any real rhyme or reason to what I was posting up there. Was there a moment when you were like, you know, this legal thing is great. You know, I spent all this time trying to pass a bar exam. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice being a lawyer where, where you decided to make that jump, taking Iron Far from a hobby to a profession. Um, I guess there would be two steps in that process. One would be, someone coming to me wanting me to coach them um mm-hmm. michael hall who back to running these days uh and then i guess i i mean i i didn't really love what i was doing as an attorney um and was kind of it was a, a high stress low reward environment in a lot of ways at least for what i was doing and it was really in, i went to the run the marathon to sob um mm-hmm. Megan Hicks, uh, we'd met the year before and had started dating uh, a little bit before, a couple months before that. And we both ran there and uh, Michael Wardian was one of our uh, tent mates and was one of my teammates for the race. And just having that week long break of being in the desert um, away from my job, I remember just on the way back saying, hey, Megan, you mind if I come move out to California with you? And that was a, a yes. And it was, it was just a bunch of things coming together. I figured I'd give it a try. It was, there was no no guarantee at all. No, no, there was no success at the moment in a sustainable sense. And there was no, no clear path. I would just like write down a list. All right, here's things I can do to maybe make this work. And at that point it was coaching. Yeah. You just, by the way, glanced over how smooth you are, by the way, after sharing a tent with your girlfriend and Michael Wardian, you decide like, Hey, what am I, how about I move out there? We give this thing a go. That was a pretty smooth yeah. move, Powell. Pretty smooth move. 
It worked out all right. <laughs> I would say so. I would say so. Do you remember, Brian, the first moment that you were recognized out at a race for being Brian Powell from I Run Far? No, but it, it was and still is weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it happens. Do you hear people like whispering? Because you're at Western States and you're, you know, I've seen you out there and, and you're, you're covering the race and running here and running there. And, and you probably hear it and you can, you can say you don't hear it. And I, won't, I won't call you out on it. But there are people going, I think that's Brian Powell from I Run Far. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you get a little used to it, but definitely the first times like I guess I can definitely remember it being over like in the streets of Chamonix covering UTMB and like some like Icelandic guys coming up and being like, "Hey, you're, you're Brian Powell, right?" I'm like, "Yeah," and it's just like, "Okay," and I guess being in front of a camera lends itself to that. I mean, if I was never in front of a camera again, I'd be okay with that, but it's part of what we do and. Uh, I, it makes me recognizable. It it makes also for great difficulty because I am horrible with names and faces. Yeah. Uh, and I become recognizable through all those interviews. So there's a, a lot of, I should know you, but <laughs> I don't when, remember your name. That's when you go, oh, hey, you. Oh, it's yeah. so great to see you. How? What have you been up to? That's when you really don't go specific with names it's just oh <laughs> hey it's so great to see but, you and, but, but people also catch themselves oh yeah you don't know me <laughs> i know you <laughs> speaking of of in front of the camera brian i gotta ask you probably my favorite brian powell video interview was from western states oh three or four years ago when you it was the night before western states and you were interviewing Walmsley and both of you were in the water and he had had a few that was do you remember that interview uh, yep i was going to guess you were going to say that one <laughs> it's it, infamous <laughs> uh, i don't know i don't know how those beers hit hit uh Jim, I think you'd have like a beer and a half, so I don't know. I when you weigh 20 pounds, these... come on, when you weigh 120 yeah. pounds, I mean, what's your he, tolerance at that point? He, he's pretty fit at that point and pretty trim, so uh, anyway, yeah, I, I do remember that. Crazily enough, I think that was my third interview in, in some body of water. <laughs> it just kind of happens over the years. What was your first interview in a body of water, do you remember? Uh, would have been one of the old La Sportiva Mountain Cup races, uh, the Roth Rock, uh, right? It's the Roth Rock Challenge or Roth Rock 30K. I don't know what the official name is. Anyway, um, there was like a little pond at the finish, and they had like little like two person paddle boats, and I just remember going out and like <laughs> setting up the camera because <laughs> if you can't have fun, it's not. This isn't. I don't know. <sighs> Why it doesn't have to be a stodgy, overly produced, you know, restrictive sport like, and we've kind of tried to keep that feel and uh, authenticity throughout the what we've done. Like, there's no reason we we hesitated for ages to have a, a like a stick mic because we felt that felt formal and maybe less comfortable for for people who aren't used to being interviewed. Um, but eventually we yielded audio quality, but 
Right. Well, it's not like you turn to the camera every time, like dramatically turn and go, I'm Brian Powell from I Run Far. I mean, you just kind of casually yeah, no. drop that. You know, it's not like you're doing, yeah. it's not like you're, a, like you're trying to Fox News it up where you have like, like wow. lightning banners and stuff like Western stage coverage, I Run Far. You know what I mean? And that's, that's probably like a philosophy across I Run Far. Like our result, there are articles about like what happened in a race or whatever the race name is results. Like we don't try to have the catchy, title and that's intentional like we don't want to hype it up or like here's the information here's what went out here's what happened like right it's just, yeah it's, it's not flashy when you are interviewing someone and it and it does kind of start going crazy like when you're when Walmsley's in the in the in the in the water before western states is there a part of you during the interview going this is going to be a click monster this is going to get me nope. a lot of views no <laughs> not at all <laughs> i just try to keep it i mean because I could steer it and stuff in that direction and intentionally don't just try to keep it even keeled and uh, on the rails most of the time. <laughs> Has there ever been one that doesn't that's... always work? <laughs> Has there been and one then that's you, you, the... then there's interviews, you know, that are going to swerve. Like you just give Zach Miller the, the mic and he's going to not say anything crazy, but he's just going to, he's going to talk or, or whatever. Like there's people like that. <laughs> was there ever one and you don't have to mention the name of the runner was there ever one that was so bad you didn't release it because you're like i i can't do it nope no 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 okay good didn't go off the rails easier ones and harder ones uh not all the time sometimes uh stuff in when it's not a person's uh first language when english isn't their first language it can be challenging or just culturally that might be more direct and term oh hold on that's okay so the incoming call on mute that. Uh, yeah. yeah, it can just be more challenging uh, just in terms of getting answers more than a couple words long. Uh, <laughs> but that that's generally the biggest challenge that, that we run into in doing interviews. Like what do you do? Like you, you prep, right? So you're, you're looking and you're like, ah, you got an idea of where, what questions you're going to ask. And it, yeah. and like what we do here. And, and I, I just like to, you know, set people up and, and let them go. But there's sometimes, you're right, Brian, when you set someone up and it's like, yes. And you're like, Oh, and I just had a name flash in my head, a face flash in my head. And, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, they're not, they're not trying to be no. obtuse or any, no, it's just, and, and yeah, occasionally you can get them to, to, to not open up, but just go on a little bit more, but you have to be a little more intentional in it. Who have been some of your favorite interviews where maybe you were expecting one thing and then you got something completely different? I don't know if I've had anything that, that really switched it up on me that I can think about, but I mean, some of my favorite interviews are, I mean, I remember interviewing my buddy, Scotty Mills after this 20th Western States. And that, that was really meaningful. And it's those, those interviews that just have personal meaning are the, are the most Mm -hmm. rewarding ones. Um, And that can be just on a, over time you get to know some of these athletes and, their personal interest or concern for you uh, can be can be can be very meaningful because they are your friends. And I've just I'm not going to name names, but I've had some runners when we when I've also raced that, that given event afterward ask me questions not about, not in an interview format, but even before like show genuine interest and like it's really cool how it's uh, indicative of how this sport has always, as far as I've seen it, uh, welcomed other new 
people had an integration between the top finishers and folks at the back of the pack in the middle of the pack. Like we're all in this together and we can understand to some degree what the others are going through. Um, even if we can't fathom their performance, whether it's on the fastest end or the surviving even more time out in the mountains. Do you think maybe Brian? It's because it's probably one of the one of the few sports where there are some people that do it professionally. There's some people that you know mm-hmm. that's all they do. But a lot of people have a side hustle as well, or they're coaching or whatever. And the fact that there's not corrals, you like you go to a big city marathon, mm-hmm. you are never going to meet the elite runners at a big city marathon. They're starting ten or fifteen corrals ahead of you. And they're done, and they're home, and they're on the plane home before you're you're even crossing the finish line. Where at mm-hmm. these races, I mean, I've been to races where people that are middle of the back of the Packers line up right next to Carl Meltzer and go, "Let's give this a go for a couple miles and see how this turns out." And it's really yeah, that's the only I mean, sport you can do that. Yeah, you're not going to a, a PGA golf event, and I don't even know who's in golf these days but you know you're not playing around with them thankfully i'm not playing basketball with joel Embiid because that's going to be ugly like (laughs) like but like there's a there's a huge separation in all those other sports and yeah like we are lining up uh no matter where you are in the pack together and there's a accessibility to that and a and a shared camaraderie like because that you know if, if say a killian wins western states and i'm there we both ran on that same day on that same course and we can be like, it was so hot in that Canyon or, or what about that climb or whatever it was. And you can commiserate and, and have that shared experience because you are on that same starting line on that same day. Yeah. I think about that's really cool. Yeah. And how, how I, I, I don't think ultra running becomes, um, road running as far as money's concerned, just because, I mean, when you have a race like Western States, there's 400 people that are allowed to run it. It's not mm-hmm. 40,000 people that are allowed to run it. So there's never going to be the huge paydays that you have in road running simply because we don't have the capacity on the trails that we're running to have the amount of people necessary to attract enough attention, to attract, uh, attract enough sponsors, and to bring enough money into the sport where I, I, at least the way I look at it, but heck, you're Brian Powell. You can tell me I'm wrong and full of crap, and I'll say you're Brian Powell. Uh, but if we, I don't think we're, I don't think we're the sport's going to move in that direction. We're always going to kind of have that connection between the elites and the middle and the back of the pack, simply because I don't see this being something where the sport starts dividing. You know, the starting line. I mean, we have to do a little bit of that with Corona, but all of a sudden, there's not going to be a a $100,000 payday to win Western States when you have, and now all of a sudden you've got 40,000 people running it and you'll never see these elites. And then there's courtesy kind of crowds. Like it makes sense at the beginning of a UTMB where there are 22, 2300 runners to let the folks at the front of the pack get on the the road and the trail first. Like that's, but that you're still again on that same starting line and it's, it's not so different. Uh, I mean, I guess even to further your point, there are races in Europe or race festivals, let's say, mm-hmm. where there's the UTMB or the Templier and, and increasingly some others where there are seven or 10,000 runners over the course of a weekend. It's not 40,000, but there there's high number of entrants. There's festival, you know, expos, there's you know, all the fans, there's big sponsorship from brands and towns and whatnot. So the fact that it, there are places where that scale isn't so different. And yet 
there is still a connection between the runners at the front of the pack and the back of the pack. I mean, for one example, the Zagama Ice Curry Marathon in Spain, a Basque country. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's only, I think there's 500 runners or so, but there's tens of thousands of people lining that course. And later that night in the bar, it's the guy and gal who won it and the people who finished the back of the pack and then just fans just having a beer or a couple. And it's just like, <laughs> but like, there's no like, oh, you, we can't be with these other people. Like, you know, those those top runners are, they're part of the, the whole community, which is really cool. So what you're saying, Brian, I think we're in agreement that we're never going to see yeah. 40,000 people run Western states and have Def Leppard or the surviving members of Def Leppard playing on the high school track no. when you're done. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that were hoping that's not going to happen. Uh, how have you seen, Brian, the sport change in the last couple of years and do you think it's moving in a positive direction or maybe not so much? I mean, I guess a couple changes that come to mind are there are some close or there are more folks who don't have other jobs or are pretty minimal in, in obligations. There's sort of more full-time uh, professional ultra runners now, a good deal more than yeah. there used to be both in Europe um, us and increasingly asia um i mean since i started in 2002 the us ultra running and, and trail running scene blew up hugely uh europe followed and now you have excuse me south america and asia following very quickly um and that's i mean i think all those are totally positive changes i don't think we've although especially in the us we have sort of in a lot of cases, hard caps and how many people you can have in a given race mm-hmm. areas have all scaled to have a, a suitable number of races to what the sort of what the market will bear. Like the, there's the invisible hand and uh, you know, yeah, you, you can complain about not getting into UTMB or Western States or, or hard rock or whatever else race it is. But in like a Bay area, there's tons of ultra runners, but there's a number of different organizations that put on a race every other weekend, let's say. And, you know, that's not the case out here in the San Juan to Colorado or somewhere in Wyoming, but there's a couple and there's enough that you're, you can get into a race. You can drive to on a Friday night race Saturday and drive home at the end of the weekend. So I don't think we've outrun our capacity, I guess is my point on that. So we haven't, the sport's not gotten too big for that. Um, and there's been, it's funny. Cause like there's, Again, you can say there's a couple pinnacle events that sell out, but there's so many cool new races that come up. Uh, it's not just, you know, some marginal laps of some crappy towpath like, like you wouldn't want to run. I think there's great towpaths too, but right. it's not like there's just these marginal races out there. You get races like High Lonesome come out. I think there's the, I don't know if it's happening this year, but the Wyoming Range 100 just kind of popped onto my radar. There's, uh, yeah, there's just stuff that like would excite me that didn't exist a couple years ago that now does. And there's going to be continue to be more of those. We've had some, some consolidation in the sport, um, sort of with race directors and organizations taking on a group of events. I haven't really seen anything bad. I've been cautiously watching it just to make sure, like, see if, 
not if passion was lost, but the individuality and the uniqueness of mm. events kind of went away with that. And I really haven't seen that, especially especially when a, one of those organizations has taken over an, an extant race. Yeah. Um, that transition, as far as I've always seen or heard, has gone well. And if anything, it just smooths out reinventing that logistical wheel once a year for for an independent organization. And when it's part of an organization, like you can still have that spirit of the race and the same, hopefully the same volunteer groups that have always manned aid station one, two, and three are still there and you're still at the same park to finish and, and, and you can continue that spirit. Yeah. I think we saw a corporate takeover attempt in a way, uh, probably what, five, six years ago with Leadville when Lifetime Fitness took over mm-hmm. and they kind of brought some ideas to the sport that you could tell they they, they may have not had the, the most experience in the sport and maybe some board member at Lifetime's like, yeah, I know what this race needs. Here's what we're going to do and had all these things that, but it corrected itself very quickly and they you could tell that the race itself moved way back into into the, the the right lane the center lane if you will after veering off yeah. a little bit the sport yeah, kind of pre-selling itself. iv bags anymore <laughs> <laughs> i don't i hope not <laughs> no but like that is part of the beauty is i mean the the, the sport corrected itself and they, and they made i mean as leadville is an example they made mistakes yeah but like people could point those out and the year later they at least went in the right direction. I don't know if they're fully there or not. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned corporate takeover. There's going to be a lot more of that um, in the sport. Do you think so? Like who's, who's gunning for, where do you see that on the horizon? Uh, well, I think it's already happened some with Ironman and Spartan. Yeah. Um, both, both have, either full or partial ownership of some races now uh, and, and big name races. Um, and I think you'll continue to see more of that. I do think you look at the Spartan model, Brian, I remember when Charlie Engel kind of became the, uh, the spokesperson for Spartan. Boy, did he take a lot of heat. Even people were like, ah, Charlie Engel. And I remember talking with him and saying like, I don't know if people that are running these Spartan trail races are the same people that are running trail races. And I, and I, I will agree with him on, on, on the point. And I'll also say that ultra running people that I know anyway, the, the, the runners of this sport are not the type of people who are going to pay an incredible amount of money just to get in then pay money to to sit at the finish line, then pay mm-hmm. money to do this, then pay money to park. And if they want their family to come watch them at the finish line, their family's got to buy a ticket. Like I don't, I I see like, I don't know, but you, you tell me if I'm wrong. I see the, the, the ultra running community saying like, yeah, I'm not paying for my grandma to get a ticket to the finish line. Yeah. And I think there has been push from within the trail side of like Spartan as an example to correct that what feels like a mistake from within our community. Um, and I think due to existing like utilization of a, say a, an area for a Spartan finish and a trail race finish over the same weekend or whatever it is, like there had to be some, uh, co- some negative compromises from the trail running perspective. But I think at least I've heard, um, we'll see if it actually comes to fruition, but changes on the trail running side of like say Spartan to, to eliminate some of those what feel like egregious and unnecessary right. add-ons and but on the other hand like if you can you know if a a spartan or an iron man can create 
a pinnacle product. And even, I mean, the Iron Man example it would be the one to the most profitable model for a sport or for in, in trail running, let's say. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying profitable necessarily a good way, but right. where you have a pinnacle event, a Kona Ironman, and then you own the, the trademark and then you create, you know, there is scarcity, but you, you further create that scarcity and then you can up the price because there are some people willing to pay. I mean, none of the sort of pinnacle ultras at the moment like on the trails have gone the pricing model, but if a UTMB or a Western States or a hard rock or a Leadville decided to charge a thousand dollars for an entry, they'd sell out. Don't put ideas in people's head, Brian. <laughs> no. And I, I, my, I, and I, I think all of those boards and all those organizations are, I mean, they, they know that's an option, but that, that would again, sort of sabotage the, their standing in the sport, at least from the main body of the sport. Yeah. Cause I don't know if we're big enough. There's, if there's enough people doing the sport that you could piss off a massive amount and still be profitable. You could do it for a year or two. You, you could still be profitable doing that for a year or two, but right. I think that would catch up. It'd be like, so you're going to run that, <laughs> that lame race that charges a thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. You, or you 1500 could, or whatever. I mean, I'm just, like, right. I'm just trying right. to throw out an exorbitant amount. Cause right. you know, it costs money to put on a very small number of entrance race that covers a hundred miles. Like, right. That's not going to be pocket change. <laughs> Do you ever like look at Brian, look at some of the entry fees for hundred mile races. And I've done ones that are fantastic and they're well supported and it's a great course. And, and it's like, you're paying $250 to run for a day. And that, well, I mean, it, it, for, that, that is, I mean, it's not cheap. Don't be wrong, but it does seem like that's a really good bargain. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never paid an entry fee for a hundred mile or I was like, that's too much for that. I mean, it, it's it, for, cause for me, like it's, you're getting supported for that. You're, I mean, it's at least over a day. Right. You're, you're guaranteed support. So, yeah. you know, you're talking a day or two. Um, along, I mean, I don't necessarily need more race swag, but you get race swag, you get, you know, food afterward, you get all this, you get the marking and the support and the encouragement. But for me, I've noticed that the accountability that comes with that, like you've put your money on the line, number one. Yeah. Uh, but it, just having a hundred miler on the schedule, that's an event, that's a fixed date mm -hmm. motivates me to get out there and train. Whereas, I mean, to be honest right now, I'm having, I'm, I'm running every day, but I'm not doing anything that I would consider training because there's just nothing on my calendar. So there's no, not that there's accountability, but there's just not that motivation to, to push and it this could be a good long-term reset i'm not right. doing it entirely negatively but having that that those 250 dollars my point i guess go a lot longer and a lot further than than just that day or two days yeah i yeah i get you it's, it's worth the price of mission i have noticed that i don't know if you've noticed this brian but 50k seem to be uh going quite a bit higher in price and and try and, and almost trying to capitalize on that rock and roll marathon type of type of yeah. uh model i i think that i mean it's not just 50ks it's shorter trail races or, or trail marathons and uh to some degree that's going to have me racing less um i mean i think especially with a yeah i i just want i, I would probably personally be selective much and i thought about this for a couple of years now is just continue to be more selective and 
in in those races because I know I while I'm not it'd be a rare occasion for me just to go out and run 100 miles by myself right I can go around a 50k training run not right now but yeah I've done uh those runs by myself I did a 50 mile training run kind of after the white mountains hunter in Alaska was canceled this spring, which I was supposed to run. And I can do that. And I don't, that was self-supported. I right. can, I'm okay with that. So train. Yeah. I just, some of those shorter, it's hard cause I can understand a race doing it and there are costs and all that, but it's also hard to, to justify paying that much on a frequent basis. <laughs> right. Exactly. By the way, when you said like, uh, th- like you need any more swag, <laughs> I'm just picturing you crossing the finish line going, ah, nah, that's okay. I'm Brian Powell. I have plenty of stuff at uh, home. <laughs> but like, I, I mean, I, I think I wrote about that in like bef- before I run far was full time. I wrote about like, do we need more race swag? Like if you've done five races over the last two years, you've got an, you've got enough t-shirts. Like, I don't know. I, I I do appreciate when races, I don't know if it's increasingly, but I wish I like when races offer the option to to purchase like items. Like, right. I'd rather have the cost of the event. I mean, I know to some degree you get get cheaper shirts and what the cost of printing shirts goes way down when you buy a bunch and all of that. And there's the predictability of it, but, um, um, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I remember like bringing that up with Western States, like the, the silver buckles cost a lot of money. Like after my first silver buckle, can I, can you just like not give them out and make the, the race that much cheaper unless somebody loses one and they can right. buy the second right. replacement or whatever. But like, just, I don't, I don't need for any given race, three buckles or five buckles or whatever it is. Okay. Now, hang on. Do you've not thought of selling any of your buckles on eBay? Have you? Yeah. Thankfully, no. Well, no. <laughs> I was about to say, well, I mean, I suppose it crossed my mind if I like had some long-term cancer treatment or something. But, you know, I'm, not, I'm not about to go sell to to sell my buckle to uh, to go have some fast food or something. Just know, guys, if you're on eBay and you see Brian Powell's 2005 Western State Silver Buckle on eBay. Either it's a prank or Brian's in real deep trouble <laughs> and bid high exactly. and bid often for, for, for that buckle. <laughs> let's hope that never has to become a serious consideration. Yes, let's, no. let's, let's hope not, Brian. Uh, do you think we ever see ultra running in the Olympics as it continues to grow and it becomes bigger around the world? Uh, I could be pilloried for saying this, but I hope not. Like for a number of reasons. Uh, like... I don't know that we need it. Um, Are you worried that Team USA is going to embarrass us? No, I think we'd have <laughs> enough interest in that case. But it just, I mean, for one, having maybe it's, no, I don't think it's bias. If you look at how many people in the world at the high school, at the kid level, high school, collegiate, and adult level run cross country, mm-hmm. and cross country hasn't been in the Olympics in 200 or 100 years. Yeah. Like, or roughly a hundred years, like let's get cross country an IAAF sport back in the Olympics before. All right. We, we go, we go down, the, we go down the ultra running road. <laughs> All right. Brian Powell is essentially saying step one, let's get cross country in there. Step two, then we'll talk about ultra running. It's such a niche sport. I mean, like how many, 
I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not going to name any. I, I couldn't because I haven't watched the Olympics in a while. But like, there's there's just some real niche sports in there. You're like, how how is this a are you Olympic worried, sport? Brian, Brian? Are you worried that if they do put uh, ultra running into the Olympics, that you won't be able to watch rhythmic gymnastics anymore because they'll have to remove that and you'll have the guys with the ribbons? That would be a real loss for all of us. <laughs> and if they ever touch ping pong, I'm just going to go nuts. Because <laughs> ping pong in the Olympics is where it's at. Table tennis, sorry. Table tennis. You can check out Brian's other blog, I Love Ping Pong. Dot com where he interviews the best ping pongers from around the world. It is amazing. These <laughs> men and women are beyond category. <laughs> so how has the, the Rona been for you and I run far? I know for me, it, it, all the, what I've noticed is with the absence of races and they're coming back now, more races are starting to actually take place, but people have really kind of taken the fitness they had for races, not me, but other people have and done some really incredible things. And I think about uh, Corey Waltering, who just set the FKT on the ice age trail, which is some ridiculous mm-hmm. 1200 mile, you know, thing. And you see a lot of FKTs falling and a lot of people doing some really cool things. Has it been, have you noticed that and, and you're able to actually cover some things for I run far? Um, yeah, there have been a lot of people sort of going out there and doing individual, you know, FKT style events and, mm-hmm. and pushing themselves in a different way. I mean, I think initially it was a little irresponsible to like be traveling and pushing yourself in the back country when we had so many variables, yeah. um, in terms of just no, not knowing how quickly to say hospitalizations might spike or, um, it now seems a little more responsible and, and, and reasonable to do at this point to, to push yourself really to the limits. Um, and people are, I mean, I think you're going to have a, an overwhelming number of people, uh, try FKTs. Like, uh, I'm definitely hearing stuff in the background about like half a dozen, a dozen people try that might go for the same one here or there. And cause it, it, part of it's, people wanting to challenge themselves and having a goal and having something to do part of it's maybe I think I've observed for a long time, like 20 years, people feeling internally applied pressure to perform for their sponsors. Even mm-hmm. if there's no, you need to do X or Y. Um, yeah. And just to, just to be out there and, and do stuff. So I think there's going to be a lot more on that front this summer uh, for sure. Are you going to be writing an article for I run far called FKT fatigue? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, I've had enough of your damn FKT attempts. Stop hashtagging me in them. Stop tagging me yeah. in your FKT attempts so I cover them. But I mean, we we might start covering them um, later on in the summer. I don't know. We we definitely did take a pause intentionally um, as all this was starting to play out. And, right. Um, it just didn't didn't feel like for a number of reasons the right time to be to be writing about that stuff. Um, and sort of the same goes about racing. Right. Uh, trying to try to be responsible. Way trying to weigh what's what is responsible and what uh what is you know what what maybe shouldn't be done or what, you know. Okay. We're we still still a lot of questions up in the air. That's and, the truth. Um <laughs> here's the question everybody wants me to ask you, Brian, because you know, we've been talking for fifty minutes. This hasn't come up yet. Um 
Brian Powell, have you ran any virtual races during the Rona? I did run two different events so far. There was the Yokoro in Casa, uh, one out of Spain mm-hmm. um, back in late March. I ended up running a marathon that day up here in Silverton. It was fun. Okay. And then Megan and I and I run far put on the uh, Operation Inspiration virtual run, a virtual race back in early April and <laughs> didn't do much, but I did partake in that. <laughs> we, we'd have, we had a rather otherwise busy day, so I managed one hour and to kind of commiserate with some people who were pretty much on lockdown at that point. Cause it was like the first weekend in right. April. I just ran around my block for an hour, which was surprisingly nice. But, uh, those are the only two events, uh, that I've taken part in so far. It's kind of funny that there's a lot of, there's a lot of poo pooing and I've, I've one who has poo pooed on virtual races in the past, mainly because, Virtual races for the longest time were like theme 5Ks. Like you see them in your Facebook feed all the time. And it's like the uh, the Susan Sarandon 5K and the medal looks like Susan. And, you know, you run 5K and they send you the medal and the T-shirt. But it seems like a lot of ultra running companies and you think of, you know, race directors like, like Steve Durbin and Laz who did the great virtual race across Tennessee mm-hmm. where, you know, we all poo pooed on them, and then we saw not only was this giving people something to look forward to, but it was keeping like print shops in business when they were shut yeah. down. And like metal companies that make medals for races thought they would have to close their doors, but now they've got to make 16,000 medals, or sorry, they had to print 16,000 t shirts for the great virtual yeah. run across Tennessee. So, yeah, I mean, you can see that for even like existing race organizations, like. You can break, you know, they can do something or they can go out of business. And if they can do that, that creates excitement and positivity. That's awesome. I mean, we tried to do that with our Operation Inspiration Race, which was free and just yeah. raised money for the WHO COVID response fund, um, which ended up with Google's matching, raising 150 some thousand dollars. Damn. Ridiculous. Wow. Um, but yeah, I mean, and we're actually going to, we're putting Megan and I and Iron Far are putting on a, uh, a virtual relay that to the moon virtual relay next, uh, next week, starting on Monday. Um, I don't actually, I don't know when this is coming out, so I don't know, don't know if I can say next <laughs> Monday, but on June 29th to July 5th, we're going to have a to the moon virtual relay. It's free, entirely free, um, with the purpose being to just bring people together to try to run 20, 238,000 miles to the moon over the course of a week, or maybe a little more, but yeah. just, can we do something positive as a group can it motivate? I mean, I, like I said, I've had some m- motivation problems getting out and, and doing more than some just very basic training. So maybe I'll go from 35 to 70 miles that week and, and find some motivation in that. As I have in those in the, like the Yokoro and Casa virtual race. Like, so hopefully a bunch of people come together for that. Um, I know we were just really excited when we had the operation rate inspiration race. Cause that was a really negative time on say social media, yeah. like right at the beginning of April. And there were just so many, we had, like sort of encouraged people to share things with the operation inspiration hashtag. And there were just so many positive messages of like the beauty of the trails they were running on or people going out as families and just having an active day on the trails and just, yeah, create some goodness in the world at the moment. Okay, so we'll have like we'll have two uh, endings to that part of the discussion. Like we'll <laughs> say, "Hey, Brian, where can people sign up for the To the Moon Relay?" 
<laughs> um, you can go to irunfar.com and uh, you'll find a, the upper left menu option will give you a link right to that. And the other one will be, man, Brian, that was huge. Good to see a lot of people getting together and putting those virtual <laughs> miles in and going all the way to the moon. <laughs> that, was, that was a great idea, Brian. Good job on that. <laughs> And it's an it's an audacious goal, so we'll see if it if it happens. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other things I was thinking about, Brian, when you when you said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll come on," is your your Twitter, the I Run Far Twitter feed for so long before, right before you could really track people through the website, at least for Western states, like you were the the your Twitter feed, I Run Far's Twitter feed was basically our televised version of the race. Mm-hmm. And just constantly refreshing that damn Twitter feed and looking and looking for information and information. It's quite possible, Brian, that during those times when when the Twitter feed for I Run Far was the coverage of Western states, you were probably getting more Twitter followers or, or at least more Twitter love than Kourtney Kardashian or, or Kim Kardashian. <laughs> you were bigger than a Kardashian during those times. That's, that's got to feel pretty good. For about for about like seventeen hours, sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can't say it. I mean, I'm bigger than a Kardashian for for Here for any go. number of times. So you hang your hat on that, Brian. That's pretty yeah. impressive. Um, it was fun. It's it's fun to bring bring those events and those spectacles to the world uh, for sure. It was a lot of fun. Um, what are you looking forward to when the world the world goes kind of back to normal and we're racing again? Eventually, putting the, putting a bit back on myself and and trying, yeah, yeah, just ha- having a reason to test myself and finding that that spark and that uh, and the sense of adventure. I mean, I wonder, I wonder what that time frame and scale is. Um, but if it coincides with the ability to travel, like over the last couple years, maybe half decade the having ultras on my calendar, having trail races has been a increasingly a reason to, to travel. I don't, aside from work, I try not to, to travel. I rarely drive to a trailhead. Um, but like I do indulge once, maybe twice a year to go experience a different landscape or a different culture. And, to, to see that again, to have that interaction, um, I'm looking forward to it. Brian, you can play to the to the home crowd because yeah, I, I talk to people all over the United States, but with my last podcast and where I'm at, and most of the runners I've talked to, this I, I play heavy to the beast coast. Brian, this yeah. is a, this is a chance to 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 play up to the home <laughs> crowd. You know, your your heart still pumps beast coast blood through it. Are there any races out here on our side of the country that have just piqued your interest, or if you shunned us entirely? There are. There, there's. I'll name two, uh, sort of two or three. Um, what I don't know what it's renamed to, but it was a steep Canyon 50 K. It might just be the hullabaloo 50 K at this yeah. point mm-hmm. uh, outside of, of North Carolina, Charles Humphreys race. Uh, Hey, if you can get some, some trail running bluegrass and, and beer together, I'm in. That's a winner. Um, and if I, I thought about that, my sister's, uh, run a, an ultra before and, um, she, she spent some time in that area. So I'd love to, maybe get her family together and just make it a fun festival weekend, uh, down there. Maybe it'll happen this year. Yeah. Um, I'd like to, 
<laughs> I grew up in central New Jersey and there were definitely no ultras in the neighborhood when I was growing up. Uh, and now there's one that starts in Washington Crossing State Historic Park that's by my parents' house. And uh, a friend, uh, a friend and like, I guess a female teammate from high school, she is involved in the organization. It'd be fun to to go run both the trails that I've logged hundreds of miles on, but also some that have come into existence since I've moved away. That'd be fun. I don't even know what the name of that one is, but it's October. Uh, and I'd like to go back to Laurel Highlands uh, someday. I've run that fully twice and once uh, as a, a DNF, I guess. Uh, <clears throat> but in a very fun way. It was my, I just, I don't know what was going on that year. I'm sure I was just stressed and busy. Um, but it was the one and only time my sister ran an official ultra. So she was starting to 50 K it must've been after, I think it must have been a later start or something. But anyway, I waited for her to an aid station and then ran the last 10 miles or 15 miles with my sister and her only ultra. So that was a good experience. That's really cool, Brian. That's awesome. It was, it was awesome. Um, if we do cross paths, if I, if I do see you at a race, can I interview you in a body of water on video after we've had a couple? For sure. But I expect you to have like a button down shirt on with running shorts <laughs> just below <laughs> camera's height. Because that's the way to do running interviews. <laughs> I speak from experience. <laughs> we are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search The Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. 